It's so good to be with you. It's such an honor to be back. We were here several years ago and had a tremendous time and so happy to be back with you again this year. This summer was a monumental year in our marriage. My wife Kathy is with me and uh, this summer we celebrated two big milestones in our marriage. On August 23rd, we celebrated our 40th anniversary. Forty years with me, that's something to celebrate, I'm telling you. She has put up with an awful lot over those years. And then on September the 2nd, uh, we welcomed our 10th grandbaby into the world. Her name is Magnolia Adams. Isn't that wonderful? I'm going to call her Maggie. I'm going to call her Maggie. I'm not sure I did this with you last time I was here, but uh, Kathy said it's worth hearing twice, so. Uh, what is a cat? Anybody have a cat at home? What is a cat? Cats do what they want. They rarely listen to you. They're totally unpredictable. When you want to play, they want to be alone. When you want to be alone, they want to play. They expect you to cater to their every whim. They are moody. They leave hair everywhere. They drive you nuts and cost you an arm and a leg. Conclusion, cats are little women in fur coats. <laughs> oh my, I have dug myself a deep hole, but I can get out. What is a dog? <laughs> Dogs lie around all day, sprawled out on the most comfortable piece of furniture in the house. They can hear a package of food opening half a block away, but they can't hear you when you're in the same room. They growl when they're not happy. When you want to play, oh, they want to play. When you want to be alone, they still want to play. They are great at begging. They will love you forever if you rub their tummies. They leave their toys everywhere. They do disgusting things with their mouth and then try to give you a kiss. Conclusion, dogs are little men in fur coats. And we are gonna talk a lot about cats and dogs and women and men this coming uh, next few sessions, but this morning, uh, this morning, uh, this evening, uh, I was really uh, drawn to your theme uh, for the weekend, be still and know that I am God. I thought that would be a great place to start. So why don't we turn in our Bibles to the 46th Psalm. Turn in our Bibles to Psalm 46. And I just want to go through this wonderful psalm. Psalm 46. And why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? Can we do that?
wonderful. The psalmist begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. Oh, the nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. But he uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come now, Father. Bless your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us tonight. Touch our hearts. Lord, you know those areas of our lives where our faith is weak, where fears threaten us. Lord, I pray that tonight you would come and Pour out your love upon us and cast out all fear. Lord, that you would strengthen our hearts as we prepare this weekend to strengthen our marriage. We pray it and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The innocent headwaters of the Chattooga River meander along for miles. But near the end... Just before the river plunges into Lake Tallulah, the waters turn violent. In the words of Psalm 46, the waters roar. If you're rafting this section, the river becomes a hairy ride, full of violent sluices and keeper hydraulics. Over the years, dozens of boaters have died in the narrow, turbulent channels of the Chattooga. But I never thought I'd be one, not until one particular trip. It happened at a place called Seven Foot Falls. Can you imagine why they named it that? It's seven foot high, a rapid name for obvious reasons. It's a steep seven foot drop. Our boat got twisted in the entrance to the falls so that we hit the ledge sideways. The back of the raft flipped up into the air and catapulted me over the guys in the bow. I landed in the swirling water at the bottom of the falls. You know, in retrospect, it was only a few seconds in the water, but it felt like an eternity. At first, the churning water just held me stationary. Finally, the hydraulics sucked me under and popped me out the bottom of the hole. I came up out of the water 20 yards downstream gasping for breath, but happy to be alive. 
Prior to that day, I had always thought that when it came my turn to die, I would face death full of faith and courage. But I got to admit to you now, trapped in that whirling current, I met a dangerous enemy. I was gripped by a villain called fear. What about you? Have you ever been afraid? Several years ago, USA Today ran an article entitled, Fear, What Americans Are Afraid Of Today. Here are their conclusions. 54% of Americans fear being in a car crash. 53% fear having cancer. 50% fear the survival of Social Security, and probably for good reasons. 40% of Americans fear getting mugged in their own neighborhood. 36% fear getting food poisoning from tainted meat. 35% fear having Alzheimer's. 33% fear being the victim of a violent crime. 25% of Americans fear natural disasters. And 20% fear a random bombing. Folks today are surrounded by all kinds of fears. Consult the media and here's what you'll hear. Food sprayed with pesticides will kill me. Be afraid. Unfiltered water from my faucet will kill me. Be afraid. Cholesterol will kill me. Be afraid. A lack of cholesterol will kill me. Be afraid. Fluorocarbons in the air will kill me. Be afraid. Overexposure to the sun will kill me. Be afraid. Cell phone transmissions will kill me. Be afraid. Radon gas from my house will kill me. Be afraid. Saccharin in my coffee will kill me. Be afraid. Processed sugar in my coffee will kill me. Be afraid. Coffee will kill me. Be afraid. <laughs> People today live in all kinds of fear. The late columnist Ann Landers received 10,000 letters a month, mostly from people with problems, and she said that by far the number one problem people faced was fear. Everybody struggles with some kind of fear. Are you familiar with the term gomophobia? Gomophobia, it's the fear of marriage. Did you know there was such a thing? Gamos is Greek for marriage, and it's more common than you think. People who were previously married are afraid to marry again. Kids who come from broken homes worry if they can do better than their parents. Folks fear the permanence of marriage. Can they stay committed for a lifetime? Marriage conjures up all kinds of fears. And as if we didn't have enough potential fears in our lives, oh, the last few months have added another. Now a highly contagious virus, this COVID-19, threatens our public health, especially our elderly and our vulnerable. And with all the conflicting information we're receiving, who knows what to believe? No wonder our society has become obsessed with mitigating all possible exposure. In fact, in response to people's fears, our church, Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, we had our very first social distance baptism a couple of Sundays ago. I brought a photo with me. 
<laughs> I'm a pretty good aim. We got them dunked, no doubt about it. Hey, the world that we live in is full of fears, which was certainly true for the writer of Psalm 46. If anyone was rightfully fearful, it was him. Scholars suggest that the psalm was written in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. It was the 8th century B.C. when the Assyrian Empire ruled the world. Assyria's king, Sennacherib, was ambitious and ruthless and bent on world domination. His mighty army had conquered Syria and Israel to the north, and his sights were now set to the south on the land of the Pharaohs, on Egypt. Yet in between Sennacherib's army and the riches of the Nile was the Jewish capital of Jerusalem. Understand what King Hezekiah was up against. This Assyrian army was probably 200,000 troops strong, and its soldiers were brutal and bloodthirsty. The Assyrians would impale their conquered foes on spears, skin them alive like they were skinning a fish, cut off hands and feet and noses and ears, pluck out eyes and yank out tongues. They often would pile up skulls, outside of the city gates. I think I've got it. There we go. Just to intimidate the inhabitants of the city. Imagine trying to go to sleep knowing that the baddest of all bad guys was camped in your front yard, waiting for the light of day to attack your house and ravage your family. Huh. You can bet King Hezekiah was scared spitless. Yet the frightened king prayed. He asked God for help. And three times in the scripture, three times no less, just so that we don't miss it, God documents his deliverance. 2 Kings 19, 2 Chronicles 32, and Isaiah 37. Those passages tell us that in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord came against Assyria. This angelic avenger drew his sword and slew 185,000 Assyrian troops. By morning light, the enemy, the remainder of the enemy army was in full retreat. And it's then when someone, perhaps King Hezekiah, maybe the prophet Isaiah, but one of Jerusalem's survivors looked over the walls at all of the carnage and death and marveled at God's miraculous deliverance. He took a pen and parchment and he wrote Psalm 46. Over the years, this psalm has comforted many a fearful Christian in times of trouble. It's been said, Psalm 46 assures us that God can handle in his will, in his own good time and way, things which seem like total disasters to us. In light of our current fearful pandemic, let's pay close attention to Psalm 46. You'll find the psalm is divided into three stanzas. In verses 1 through 3, God is seen as a refuge. In verses 4 through 7, God is a river. And in verses 8 through 11, God is seen as ruler. Each stanza, you'll notice, ends with the term 
Selah, which was a musical notation. It signaled an interlude. It was a bridge where the instruments continued to play while the previous thought was contemplated. It means to pause and think it over. This evening, we'll dispel our fears. We'll excite our faith if we push pause on all our other thoughts and think of our God as a refuge, as a river, and as the ruler. Well, verse 1 begins. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Hebrew word translated trouble, it means tight spot. Have you ever been in a tight spot? Options are limited. Time is running out. You feel pressured. You're squeezed. You're under the gun. You're between that proverbial rock and a hard place. Perhaps you and your spouse are in a tight spot tonight. Once a dad, he came home to find his usually busy household unusually quiet. He walked in and noticed all five of his kids in the floor in the center of the living room. When he saw the objects of their attention, he let out a shout. For there sat five cute, cuddly little skunks. Got a picture. Of course, when dad shouted, it scared the kids. So each of the kids grabbed a skunk and ran off into a different corner of the house. This upset dad even more. So he shouted again, which further frightened the kids. So much so that the scared kids squeezed their respective skunks. And we all know what happens when you squeeze a skunk. Life stinks. <laughs> hey, the psalmist had the same feelings this father did, and I did, when I was battling those raging rapids. At times, the circumstances of our life swirl out of control. He describes his struggling in verses 2 and 3. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. He's describing times in our lives when circumstances overwhelm us, when life spins beyond our control. Life can become a real stinker. I love the old saying, life is like fighting a gorilla. You don't rest when you get tired, you rest when the gorilla gets tired. The waters of life don't always flow gently. At times they roar with trouble and all you can do is hang on. When people tell me they don't want to go whitewater rafting because they can't swim, I tell them it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> Nobody swims in a raging river. Fall out of the boat in whitewater and all you can do is reach for a rope. Tumble into roaring waters and you're definitely in an out of control situation. This, this is how it is for a flood victim. I'm sure folks that live in a beach town know a little something about storm surge and flooding. Man, when water starts seeping under the door, you quickly try to stuff the towels across the threshold, but it's useless. You can't keep out the relentless intruder. Slowly you watch the waters rise, 
They cover the carpets. They overtake your furniture. It's a horrible, helpless situation. I have a friend who didn't know that his downstairs toilet was the lowest toilet in his neighborhood until the day that his subdivision sewer system backed up. His toilet just kept pouring and pouring and dumping and dumping sewage into his, the downstairs of his house. There was nothing he could do to stop it. That's when life really stinks. And this is the helpless sensation you sense in an earthquake. Or as the psalmist puts it, the mountains shake with its swelling. There's nothing you can do when the ground begins to shake and convulse. You're at the earth's mercy. See, there are times in everyone's life when we feel like a whitewater swimmer or a flood victim or that the earth is shaking around us and our reaction is to panic. It's a terribly hopeless thing. The psalmist gives another situation, an illustration of an out-of-control circumstance. He says, even though the earth be removed. And there's an alternative translation here. Earth can mean land. Be removed can be re rendered to change hands. So there's some Bible scholars that interpret the phrase, when the land changes hands. Imagine... An enemy, an angry enemy, armed to its teeth, storming your town, controlling your streets. Invaders now dictate when you and your neighbors can come and go, and there's nothing you can do about it. You see, this was the scene facing the Jews in Jerusalem. Of course, we could add to the psalmist's list of out-of-control situations, couldn't we? When I lose a job and get behind on my bills... When my toddler pitches a fit. When a gossip starts spreading lies about me. When my husband doesn't have time for me. When my wife doesn't understand me and my needs. When I'm raising a family and taking care of elderly parents. Or when our teenager rebels. I don't like to compare roaring waters and earthquakes and military invasions to parenting teenagers, but... There are some definite similarities. Man, when my kids became teenagers, so much was now out of my control. You lie in bed at night while the kids are out. Your mind begins to race. Where are they? What are they doing? Do they remember what I've told them? What if they're in trouble and you're powerless to help? At that moment, there's not a thing you can do. When my life or when the people I love are out from under my control, I'm prone to fear. And fear can gain a stranglehold on my life. It saps me of my energy. It paralyzes my initiative. It stymies my vision. And worse, it steals away my joy. Where do you run when the waters roar? Psalm 46 provides us the answer. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. No matter how deep the waters get, God's feet still touch bottom. Even in a raging river, His legs are strong enough to stand in the current and anchor my life. No matter how severe the storm, God can shelter me through it. If I hold His hand, if I lean on Him, God is a refuge. 
My daughter used to be a cheerleader. The best there ever was, in fact. I loved to go in hear her cheer. Of course, I had to teach myself how to go to the football games and watch the cheerleaders instead of the football game. But you can do it. Over the years, I heard thousands of cheers and chants while she was growing up. And on occasion around our dinner table, me and her three brothers would mimic their sister and her friends. And we'd do her the cheers, you know, and she'd giggle and they'd laugh and it was fun. But here was our favorite cheer. Rain can't rock this house. Lightning can't rock this house. Thunder can't rock this house. And you can't rock this house. And you can't rock this house. She must have got it from me. <laughs> but this is what the psalmist is saying about God in verses 2 and 3. It doesn't matter how out of control life gets. Bring on the rain and the thunder and the lightning and the virus. It doesn't matter. God is our refuge and strength. God is what we need when and where we need him. But here's a vital point. God is our refuge in the storm, not from the storm. Notice again verses 2 and 3. It's not if the earth is removed or if its waters roar. It's Though the earth is removed, though the waters roar, though the mountains shake. See, there are two kinds of faith. Though faith and if faith. See, if faith says, God, I'll trust you if you bless me. I'll live for you, Lord, if you solve all my problems. I'll obey you, God, if you make my life easy. That's not real faith, friends. That kind of faith gets washed away in the storm. Real faith is though faith. God, I'll love you though the earth is removed. I'll serve you, Lord, though my life is turned topsy-turvy. I'll trust you, Lord, though I feel abandoned and forsaken. See, the psalmist knows being a child of God doesn't insulate him from the tight spots, but it makes him eligible for God's help and comfort in the midst of that stress. Christianity is not immunity from trouble. It's community with God. Give your life to Jesus and he comes on board with all his sustaining resources. I've learned that when the waters roar, I have a choice. I can focus inside or I can focus outside of my life. Notice verse 4 tells us, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. See, there was danger outside the city, but the psalmist was focused on who it was who abided inside the city. God is in the midst of her. I love what one author says of Jesus we see him in the midst of the upper room after his resurrection, in the midst of the lampstands walking among the churches in Revelation. He is always in the midst. You know, he tells us, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. 
See, Jesus doesn't take us out of the mire of this life. He rolls up his sleeves and he jumps into the mess with us. He is in the midst of what we're in the middle of. This was Jesus' approach in saving the world. God became a man. He got down on our level. He tackled the same issues that we face every day. Recall the name the angel gave to Joseph that Mary's baby would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, or as the psalmist might say, God in our midst. Notice the contrast here in verse 4. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. Now in verse 3, the psalmist has talked about roaring waters. There was this rising flood of troubled waters threatening to drown the city of Jerusalem. But there was also a stream of encouragement and rejoicing that flowed into the city to refresh its inhabitants. He's speaking spiritually but there was an actual physical parallel to this imagery. See, before the reign of King Hezekiah, Jerusalem's water supply was outside the city walls. The Gihon Spring bubbled up in the Kidron Valley just east of the city. In anticipation of this Assyrian invasion, King Hezekiah carved a tunnel 1,777 feet long, cut through solid rock, The tunnel channeled water into the city. Even today, the spring still flows through the cutout rock channel. On our tours to Israel, one of the activities that we love to do is to take a hike through Hezekiah's tunnel. Perhaps some of you have hiked up that same tunnel. See, the psalmist compares this river reservoir to God. He's saying that in the midst of the storm that's brewing on the outside of my life, on the inside is a stream of vitality flowing under the walls of my life. And God is that river. God is the artesian spring that bubbles up from within the deepest part of my heart. I have a friend of mine named Kenny. He's an expert fisherman. He loves to fish the lakes around Stone Mountain Park. He has huge, he has trophies of huge bass that he's plucked out of the lakes at Stone Mountain Park. I marvel when I see these catches because I could fish Stone Mountain Park from now into eternity and never get a nibble. I always figured the fish were all state employees, always on vacation. But but let me tell you Kenny's secret. He's got maps of the lake bottoms. For years ago, a river flowed around the mountain. Today's lakes were made by flooding out the riverbeds. But see, Kenny's a smart guy. He knows where those subsurface rivers ran and the underwater banks that draw those big bass. And he can send his lures to school right along those banks and catch his limit every time. And this is what the psalmist does when floods come and troubles overwhelm him. He remembers the river that runs under the surface of his life. The Holy Spirit lives within him and within us to bring us God's joy and love and peace and strength. I hope you have tapped in to that river. In his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, author Philip Yancey, he suggests that it would help our faith 
if we viewed God's intervention in our lives not so much as coming down from above but as rising up from below. Yancey writes, we tend to view God's interactions like light rays or hailstones or lightning bolts falling to the ground. Perhaps we would do better to picture God's interaction as an underground aquifer or river that rises to the surface in springs and fountainheads. Well, the last stanza of Psalm 46 describes how God comes down to intervene on behalf of his people and defend Jerusalem from her enemies. But never forget, prior to God's deliverance from trouble, God rises among his people in the midst of their trouble. God is a river of refreshment. As Jesus promised us in John 7, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Once a man was wandering through the desert in search of water. The guy was dying of thirst when he encountered a merchant. He was selling neckties. He's, he's thinking, what, what do I need with a silly necktie? He continues to push, crawling through the hot sands, desperate, he's dehydrated. He tops a hill, and he sees a restaurant below. Wow, he's saved. He musters all his remaining strength, and he races down the hill. But when he reaches the front door of the restaurant, there's this huge sign that reads, Neckties required. That's a dad joke. You know, likewise, though, when circumstances are good, when you're riding high, you might not see the need for Jesus. But when the waters roar, and trust me, they will, and you're about to go under, you'll need that spiritual river to slake your thirst and provide you a supernatural surge. Well, the rest of Psalm 46 describes God's outward deliverance of Jerusalem. At the end of verse 5, the psalmist writes, God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Like Indians in the old westerns, ancient armies never attacked at night. It was always at first light, at the break of dawn. But God was ready. The nations raged. But God uttered his voice. The earth melted. Before the Assyrian troops could launch their attack at daybreak, the angel of the Lord took the offensive. It's another example of God appearing in the nick of time. And if you're like me, that has happened often in my life. God stretches our faith. He makes us wait. He teaches us patience and endurance. Then when we think that the door has closed, that it's now too late, he comes to our rescue right in the nick of time. The psalmist invites us in verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. And verse 10 is vitally important. It's the theme of our weekend retreat. I love it. And if you mark in your Bible, this is certainly a verse you need to underline. 
Here it is. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When the Assyrians attacked Jerusalem, there was never a question in heaven as to what God would do. God is God. He loves and protects his people. What made it an issue in the mind of King Hezekiah and the Jews in Jerusalem was fear. This is why God tells them, be still and know that I am God. You know, fear grows in the noise of conflicting voices. Listen to the noises of this world and you're destined for confusion and fear. Skeptical friends, a sensationalistic media, a doubting society all give sanction to our fears. I have some elderly parents and they sit around all day and they watch the news on TV. And when I finally bring them dinner at night, no wonder they're so fearful. They've been listening to the wrong voices. In the noise, fear takes root. Fears about family and work and circumstances and kids and marriage. It's only when we come to the quiet and let God speak to us that our faith grows. It's His Holy Spirit that steadies us. One author writes, the more we train ourselves to spend time with God and alone, the more we discover that God is with us at all times and in all places. The Greek philosopher Sophocles once said, to him who is in fear, everything rustles. In other words, our sense of God's presence gets lost. Faith gets quelched. Fear fills our hearts. Doubts prevail when we get caught up in life's confusion and chaos. God is always in control in the good times and in the bad times, but it's the noises of this world that drown out that realization. We're reminded only when we're still. See, here's the irony. As I mentioned earlier, fear becomes a threat when my life spins out of control. Fears try to climb on board when the waters roar and I can no longer navigate. In a storm or in a flood, I'm prone to fear because I lose control. But verse 10 implies that faith also grows when I lose control. I hope you know that losing control is inevitable for us all. The reality of life is that none of us are in control. At some point, we all face forces greater than ourselves. See, here's the difference between fear and faith. Fear grows when control slips from hands that desperately want to maintain it and hold on to it. Whereas faith grows when control is voluntarily given over to God. Fear and faith are nurtured, both are nurtured, by how we respond to out-of-control situations. When life goes haywire, faith knows that God is still in charge. He is the ruler over every situation. Verse 6 reads, He uttered His voice. Boom! The earth melted. That's God. 
Engineers that designed the long, tall suspension bridges, they realized that these bridges can conjure up fear in the drivers. This is why some state DOTs offer a driving service to get bridge-phobic drivers safely to the other side. For example, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge in Maryland is four miles long, and it stands 200 feet above the surface of the water. And every year, state workers take the wheel of a 1,000 cars to drive scared motorists across the span of the bay to the other end of the bridge. And this is the key to getting over our fears. Voluntarily taking our hands off the steering wheel of our life and letting Jesus drive. Faith relaxes. Faith chills out. It stops fretting and plotting and conniving and manipulating and it simply trusts. Carrie Underwood's right. We should let Jesus take the wheel. Just be still and know that he is God. Before Moses parted the Red Sea, he told the Hebrews to stand still. Before Ruth was married into God's family, Boaz told her, sit still, my daughter. Before God defeated the nations that had risen against King Jehoshaphat, he told the people of Judah, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I hope we get it. Before God acts, often before God does a single thing, he first asks his people to be still before him. Psalm 46 closes with verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. We read earlier the name given to Jesus at his birth. It was Emmanuel, translated God with us. Here in verse 11, the psalmist, he reaches the end of his praise and he shouts out his acclamation. The Lord of hosts is with us, or in essence, Emmanuel. He has looked over the walls of Jerusalem and he has seen the defeated Assyrian troops. Their corpses now scattered across the valley, and he credits this Emmanuel. I believe long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he had already been to battle. That baby had already been to battle. The pre-incarnate Jesus, the eternal Son of God, had come as the messenger of the Lord, the angel who delivered Jerusalem that night. And here's the point. If the Assyrian army was no match for our Lord Jesus, then neither are the troubles that you face. Certainly neither are the troubles that are in your marriage. They're no match for Jesus. He can win the victory. Selah. Pause now and think this over. Is God your refuge? Have you turned the control of your life over to Jesus? Do you believe he is the ruler over every situation? And if you're a child of God, even in a tight spot, if troubled waters are roaring over your life or even your marriage, then remember that God is in you. He's in the midst of your struggle. And from your heart, 
He provides a river of refreshment. Look inward tonight. Drink deeply tonight. Never ever forget there is a river of living water flowing beneath the surface of our lives. When the waters roar, be still and know that God is a refuge, God is a river, and God is the ruler. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. Father, I pray that, that each of us would just be still now. We've gotten here, we've passed off the kids to grandma, we found a kennel for the dog, we've handled all of the issues and we're here now. And Lord, I pray that now we would just get still. We would put our worries and cares on the shelf. We can do that for the next 24 hours. And we can seek your face. We can trust in you. We can spend these next few hours focused on building up our faith and building up our marriage. Lord, I believe you want to meet us here this weekend and that you want to work wonders among us. Lord, I believe that you want to, to, to build marriages. I believe you want to make them stronger. I believe that you want to take marriages that have been beaten up and battered and bruised and bring healing to them. I believe, Lord, that there are some marriages here that are on the brink of breaking up. And you want to put them back together stronger than they've ever been. Lord, help us now be still and wait on you and trust in you to work your wonders in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for being with us. And we ask for your blessing on these next, these next couple of days. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.